All right. Well, this morning, I'm going to look at a few different passages of Scripture with you. I want you to start with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're talking about the work of the ministry. Our theme verse for this conference is Ephesians 4.12. And so I'd like us to begin there. Ephesians 4.11, we'll back up one verse, says this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. We've all met a few of those in our day, probably. Thankful for them. And some pastors and teachers. So these are some of the different people that God has given to minister in the church. And then he gets into the purpose here. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I think one of the challenges that I have as a pastor, and some of you have a lot more experience than me at this, but one of the challenges I have is remembering what my job is. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of distractions, a lot of things that are important things, but maybe can take us away from the most important thing that God has given us to do as leaders in the church. You may not be a pastor here this morning. I know some of you are not. And so this message is not only for the pastors here this morning, but I think you'll see how every person who is part of the body of Christ has an important responsibility in that body. God has not brought us together as a church just to, as we hear sometimes, to sit and to soak. He hasn't brought us here just to hang out and have a good time. This isn't just a place where we come to see our friends. God has put together a body. And we know that Jesus Christ is the one that builds His church. Pastors are not church builders. Members are not church builders. Jesus Christ is the church builder. He said, I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if we're not necessarily the church builder, then what is our job here? Well, verse 12 tells us very clearly, we are to work to perfect the saints, to complete them, or is our theme for our conference, to equip them, to give them all the tools necessary for the work of the ministry to take place. And as this is going on, we see that the body of Christ is edified. It's built up. It's strengthened. It's encouraged. And then we see some of the results here. Look at verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Boy, what a, what a thought that would be to see a church in the unity of the faith. My friend and mentor, my first boss in the ministry, my first pastor when I was working full-time ministry, Harold Clayton, used to always tease a friend of his who pastored the Unity Baptist Church, and he said, well, brother, the first time you have a disagreement, you're going to have to change the name of your church. Of course, his friend, Brother Bearfield, would always reply, well, Brother Clayton, if you knew how to pastor, you too could have the Unity Baptist Church. <laughs> and so they had a good back and forth, and I always enjoyed hearing them talk about those things. But what a thought that the church could be built up and we could come together in the unity of the faith. And he says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our measure is Jesus Christ. It's not me comparing myself to the church down the street. 
It's not me comparing myself to what this world defines as a successful ministry or even what some book or conference tells me is a successful ministry. It's for us to be like Jesus Christ. He is the measure. And if we'll do these things, he tells us in verse 14 that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. I don't know what you all see out there, but I see people carried around with all kinds of every wind that blows. Somebody's getting pulled this way or that way. And these different winds that blow, they, they come by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. We live in a wicked world, don't we? Even people who profess to be believers, profess to be spiritual leaders or teachers are often we see as the wolves in sheep's clothing coming in trying to find and to discourage and to distract and to pull away. And he says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. May grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So the pastor's not the head. Christ is the head of the church. We are all part of his body. From whom the whole body, here it is, we're all working together, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Every single part of the body is important. We don't just look out at the church and say, well, where are the, the wealthy people? Where are the leaders? Where are the skilled people? Where are the highly gifted people? No, we look at every person and say, what does God want them to bring to the ministry, every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. What happens then? Make it increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. The body's increased. The body is edified. It's built up and it's done in love. So why are we here? What are we talking about today? I want us to talk about disciple making and I think you'll see why here in a minute. Why do we have to have this conversation? Why am I starting this off at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning when there's a lot of other things we could be talking about? Well, let me just give you a little of my own testimony. When I grew up, I had the privilege to be raised in a Christian home with godly parents. Uh, they'll be around some tomorrow. They've been out of town visiting my sister. She's having her first little one next uh, February, and so this was her birthday weekend, so they went up to see her and her husband up in Wisconsin. I'm thankful for my mom and dad. They're faithful members now of our church. That was the scariest thing is pastoring your parents. Some of you maybe have had to do that, and you go, whoa. My dad said, you used to check me every, every time when you were preaching to see if, if you were okay, and I said, well, then I had to realize that I have to rely on the Holy Spirit, not my dad, right, to, to make sure the preaching's good. But there's those feelings that come in your heart sometimes when you're the kid and, and you're just figuring it out. But I'm thankful for my mom and dad. We were faithful in church growing up. We had family devotions. We participated in all the outreaches at church. We, uh, we did our best to be a good witness for Christ wherever we went. Our church was full of sweet people, many of whom I'm, I'm still friends with till this day. Some of my former Sunday school teachers, I get to go see them now, and they, they still seem the same to me, just locked in time. 
just uh, back in August, we got to go visit my kindergarten teacher and her husband, who also taught me at church as well. I grew up in a little Christian school. I'm thankful for those relationships. I'm thankful for those sweet people. Our church was full of these people that served and sang and, and sat for many years in the same place, trying to do right and serve God. During junior high, I believe the Lord was calling me into ministry. I, I was at a summer camp, Southland Christian Camp. Some of you know the camp. And I was in eighth grade, and I still remember where I was sitting in the chapel on those old folding wooden seats that had the cracks in them. If you slid wrong, you'd get a splinter in your backside. I'm thankful they've upgraded the chairs now. But I remember sitting in those seats when the Lord called me into the ministry. I remember growing up at camp and hearing guys like Morris Gleiser come preach to us and glad that he's here with us now. But I would have to tell you that I think the most exciting ministry that I ever saw growing up was when I was at camp or when we would have maybe some special revival meetings or something else at our church. And God worked through those times. And a lot of people made decisions. A lot of people trusted Christ. But in my experience, while I saw a lot of decisions made, only a few decisions stuck. Only a few people stayed faithful and continued forward in service to the Lord. As I went through college and later seminary, the emphasis was on being well-trained to properly understand and apply the Word of God to our daily lives, which is important. And then to be able to run an excellent and effective program at church and organize and run the ministry well. But the problem that I began to realize over the years is that churches with good programs and good organization and good preaching seem to grow, but a lot of times that growth seemed to be as much or more than just transfer from other churches and maybe a few new believers from time to time. The excuse was that the world was just a dark place and most people weren't interested in the gospel and we just needed better ideas and a better ability to communicate with this lost world. The churches without good programming, like maybe the church I grew up in, seemed to be friendly enough in some cases, but were shrinking in size and seemed pretty ineffective at reaching the community. Many of the guys I trained with from high school and college and even seminary days headed off in different directions in regards to their standards and even in their th theology in some cases. And I believe that we were taught good theology. I, I believe we were taught good truth, but the philosophy of ministry, when you really boil it down, seemed that many times, and again, you're, you may disagree because you're a perspective may be different, but from my perspective, many times the philosophy seemed focused on attracting people to church through any legitimate means necessary and then trying to get the gospel to them when they came to us. And we ran activities and events and we tried to get people to come and invite people to church. And that's all good. I'm, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying I, I didn't feel like it's ever really been as successful. We might bring in a thousand people and we see a handful of them saved. Or we might see, I was talking to my friend this morning, they had 1,500 people on their church last night for a big event that they had. Well, wonderful. How many of those are going to continue on? And we think of ideas like, well, we just scattered the seed widely and hopefully some of it takes root. And I, I think those things have their place and their purpose. 
But I've seen too many churches that have gone through these periods of growth and then they kind of plateau out and then they decline. And often that was based around the pastor's ability to lead, organize, or his energy level. And when any of one of those three things started to drop away, the church tended to decline. And then the conversations become, okay, he's getting kind of old. Who's going to replace him? What are we going to do? But think about this with me. And this is why I'm very passionate about this. When I look at the scripture, why is it that after Jesus ascended back to heaven, that the number of Christians increased exponentially. Jesus was gone. We know he gave them the Holy Spirit, right? How did believers in cities far and wide who had been saved out of either a Jewish or a pagan background grow and change and begin to lead in the ministry? And then go out as missionaries, pastors and teachers and leaders in the early church. Is the book of Acts just an anomaly? Or are there things we can learn that ought to be normative patterns in our New Testament church today? Why is it that many missionaries on the foreign fields, that our churches are supporting faithfully, financially, why are they often growing faster and planting more churches than we are here in America, with all of our Christian heritage, with all of our financial resources that we have available to us here? Why is it that leaders, I think in many places on the mission field, are being trained better and faster than we're able to do here with all the educational resources at our disposal? You can go visit many Bible colleges around the country, and many of them will tell you the same thing. We don't have enough guys coming who want to be trained for the ministry. You know, I talk with a number of my missionary friends around the world, and they're just having to build more buildings all the time to train people for ministry. Well, maybe that's just our missionaries, and ours are better than yours. I don't know. I'm just kidding, because I know you've probably seen some of the same things. The reasons for which churches struggle are many, and I, 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 we're not going to address every reason that could come up for struggling in the church. That's not the focus of this session, but rather to hone in on an area that I believe is clearly taught in Scripture and that is demonstrated in the example of Jesus Christ and His followers and then on into the early church. So, some questions. Now, hopefully these notes we can keep up here. My boys are in the back running the sound and the notes. These guys are great. I'm thankful for them. Number one, and you can, if you want to answer out loud, you can. These are pretty simple, short answers, or um, you can just think it in your head. But since it's early, let's, if you can, if you have a voice, speak up. Does Jesus Christ still build His church? Yes, He does. Does He build it globally, nationally, regionally, and locally? Yeah, He does. So how does he build his church? That may not be a one-word answer. We'll get into that maybe in a minute. A couple other questions. What would your church do if it was illegal to use social media, illegal to meet publicly, and illegal to proselytize publicly? I'm thankful we have freedom. But the church doesn't have to have freedom to be able to grow. Not political freedom. Does 
in Christ, we are free. But would you still be able to reach people with the gospel? Would you still be able to grow? What if you didn't have any budget to pay pastors or any buildings? Now, I'm not advocating for firing pastors or getting rid of buildings. I'm asking, what is really necessary to fulfill this Great Commission work that God has given for us to do? I know we have a lot of tools at our disposal. We have, uh, we have wonderful media and technology. We have talented people. God's given us facilities to meet in and freedom to do so. But I would argue those are all tools. Those are not the thing. Those are not the work of the ministry. And sometimes I think we can get so distracted by all the other stuff that we forget what God has really put us here to do. So let's go to another passage of Scripture. This will be very familiar to most, if not all of you. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. Jesus came, verse 18, and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think everybody in here to some degree or another, is very familiar with this passage. But very quickly, notice, first of all, the power for the work. The power to do this work comes from God. Brother Johnson preached a great message last night on the little words right in front of this in verse 17, and some doubted. If you get time, I'd encourage you to go back and watch that on our live stream, it, it just some great thoughts. How, how these disciples, they'd seen him, they'd touched him, they ate with him and walked with him, they saw him even his, in his resurrected body, and they still doubted. I'm so thankful that the power to do this work doesn't come from you and me. It comes from God. You see, you don't need special ability or tools to see God work. I understand the gifting in the local church and the body of Christ, and he's given some the ability to pastor and to preach and to teach and he's given all these different abilities but he's put all these people together in a body and you don't need special ability or tools to see the work of God take place because the power comes from God. Number two, we see the process of the work. It's not just about needing a new plan, it's about being faithful to his process. And what's his process? Well, he says go. Now, the Greek scholars would tell me this is assumed. It's as you're going. Of course you're going to go. You're not going to reach anybody unless you go. And all of us who sit around, I don't know what's wrong. Well, have you even, are you even going, right? Are we even trying to share the gospel with anybody? I, I've never led anybody to Christ that I didn't talk to about Christ. <laughs> Now, a few, we've, God's brought us a few who just were looking and God was already working and it was like we just kind of bumped up the, into the tree and the fruit just fell off in our hand and I can't claim any even effort on my own part in that. But we have to be going. We have to be out there. But the verb here in this process is, is this verb to teach or to make disciples. This is the thing we're supposed to be doing. This is what Christ commanded His disciples to do. And we can see that extended over into the 
church as in Acts 1.8. We can see this as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 2, to find faithful men and teach them so they can teach others also. We understand that. And of course, we're to baptize. As people trust in Christ, they're to be baptized, making a public declaration of their faith, taking those steps of obedience and walking with the Lord. But the last part here, he says, we are to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. See, this is where the process of spiritual reproduction begins to take place. What I mean by that is the Great Commission, as you understand, I'm sure you've heard before, it's not just about leading people to Christ. That's the first step. It's then training them so in time they can lead other people to Christ. It's getting this whole reproductive process taking place. Because God's plan for the work is not just a, an addition plan, it's a multiplication plan. And I don't know about you, but I like multiplication way better than I like addition. We're thankful to add one and two to the church, but what if well, we had twice as many people? That, that sounds a lot better. Church planting is great in that regard, by the way, because we, us church planters starting from scratch, we love to work in percentages. The bigger your church gets, you switch to numbers because individual digits because like well we had you know 20 new guests on Sunday but see the church plan say we had 50% more people this week than last week now might have been from two to four you know but but like we we like percentages because those numbers sound good but you know Christ's plan was a multiplication plan I'm glad brother Donnie's here and I've been giving him a hard time he's got the fastest growing church in Texas right now you know, they were only running six people a few months ago, and now they're running over 50 people. Percentages. And, of course, we know the promise for the work. The promise for the work. He says, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. God's promise to be with you in this work. He's with you. I wonder... Do we experience His presence and His power in the work that we're doing? And perhaps it's because we're not actually doing the work that He commanded us to do. This is where God works. This is where He's present. He's here in the work of Great Commission living, of disciple making. This evangelism, discipleship, spiritual reproduction, all of these things together. So I would argue that I'm probably speaking to a room that knows all of this. So why are so many churches in plateau or decline? I don't sense that you're like, oh, that's it. I just I I didn't know about the Great Commission. No, you know that. So here's a few more questions. Is it true that children become like their parents? Yeah. Sometimes unfortunately so, right? Do students given enough time become like their professors? Yeah, they tend to, and that's one of the struggles, right? And we've, why Christian education is so important for our children to learn and be trained in a place where they're going to know to follow God. Do citizens over time tend to become like their president? It's kind of scary, but it's, um, it tends to be true. So, do churches over time become like their pastors? I believe we need to develop a culture of multiplication in our churches. We need to develop people who will reproduce 
spiritually. I know that's a lot easier said than done. We're only beginning in this process. Some of you have done this for many, many years. Instead of just bringing people to church, and we should bring them to church, don't get me wrong, but we need to point them to Jesus so they in turn can point other people to Jesus. Understand what I'm saying? It's just not enough to just bring them to church. There's got to be a lot more that takes place beyond that. And I think sometimes we know that in our heads, but I wonder if our people do sometimes. I wonder if the average person, well, I got them to church now. Pastor, you lead them to Christ. You, you, you teach them. You get them in the right classes. You help them grow. And, and we're doing our best to try to do those things. But I don't think it's enough because I don't think God called you as the pastor to do all that by yourself. He's called you to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Instead of just keeping church members busy, we need to get them involved in the Great Commission work. Not just the reaching, not just the teaching, not just the baptizing, but in the whole thing. Instead of just challenging Christians to give to missions, we need Christians who will be missionaries to their neighbors, to their family members, and to the world. I was talking with a missionary just the other day, and they said, there's just not enough. There's not enough people coming to replace the missionaries that are coming off the field. You've heard those things. It's true. So how do we change that culture? I want to talk for a few minutes about what a culture of multiplication looks like. Because culture, I think it was Peter Drucker who said this in his book. He said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture is so important. It's, it is your greatest asset as an organization. Every church has one, right? Every church has a culture, and it's amazing even with a pretty young church as ours is, it doesn't take long for that culture to take root. Culture is the spontaneous, repeated patterns of behavior. It's what you do, and a lot of things factor into that culture. First of all, your values, right? These are the convictions of your mind. This is the truth. This is the Word of God. These are the passions of your heart. These are the things you'll stay up late at night talking about. What are you called to do? If you work a job outside of the church, you know that company or that organization has a culture. That's why when you go to Chick-fil-A and you say, thank you, they're like, my pleasure. Why? It's part of their culture. It's just what they do. And it's based upon their values, that we're here to take care of the customer. We're here to meet their needs. I think we all have values. We all have things we believe, and it ought to be just contained right here in this book. So we have values, and those impact our culture. But also the narrative. And narrative comes in two parts. There's the language, right, the right terminology, the words that we used that we use, talking about things and explaining things the way that they should be. Pastor, teacher, Sunday school teacher, junior church worker, this happens when you're up in front of your class and you're speaking and you're talking about things. But it also happens in just one-on-one -on -one conversations, the kind of things that you're emphasizing and talking about, the terminology that you use. Language is really important. That's why your preaching matters. It, it matters when you get up on Sunday and what you're talking about. It, it matters what announcements are given. It, it matters what kind of terminology you use in your church because your language impacts the culture, the repeated patterns of behaviors, but also the stories. The stories. As a Christian, 
we might call these testimonies. And sometimes testimonies are people getting up in front of church or standing in the back raising their hand. Sometimes testimonies are just two guys talking about what God showed them in their devotions that week. A lot of stories of transformation take place in very private places that aren't even that public. Telling the stories of transformation. As part of what we're trying to do here is developing a path for people to take. We want to help them to understand what's going on and why they're here. It's amazing. I'm sure if you're a pastor, you've experienced this. You might have some event or activity coming up as we did a few weeks ago. And we normally have two services on Sunday morning so that, you know, we can get everybody in and make things work. And, and I decided, let's do one combined service. This will be fun. And we did. And I'm glad we're doing two services right now for space-wise. We only had two empty parking spots left, and that was with cars double parked and everything else out in the parking lot. We said, yeah, this is why we're doing two services right now. But we had some people show up for the early service and said, well, uh, is, is this going on? I said, I've been announcing this for weeks. It's been in every email. It's been on every flyer. We talk and talk and talk. But why? Because all of a sudden we switched the culture up on them. The, the repeated pattern of behavior wasn't there. And so culture is super powerful. It's way more powerful than your announcements. <laughs> it's way more powerful than your emails. It's, it, in time, it's even more powerful than what someone hears in one message that's preached. I mean, I'm amazed at people that can sit in churches and hear messages on soul winning or on giving to missions and then go out and never give to missions and never give soul winning. Why? It's because the culture that they are got themselves wrapped up in is not to give to missions or it's not to go soul winning. It's not to be involved in those things. You all know how powerful culture is. It's it's kind of all of us have our own little culture wrapped up in ourselves. It's kind of the sum total of who we are. It's really hard to change culture. And that gets into the next one that makes up culture, behaviors. Behaviors. See, if we're going to try to change culture or lead the culture in the church towards a, a biblical model of going out and reaching the lost and discipling them so they follow Christ, we have to understand that leadership comes from the top. You as the pastor or the leader or even just the individual who's trying to encourage someone else, you are the culture creator for that person or for that Sunday school class or for that small group or for that church if you're the pastor. And you will get the culture that you create. Parents, you're creating a culture in your home. Pastors, you're creating the culture in your church. And I would say this, if you don't like the culture in your home, in your church, in your class, and if you're the leader, it's your fault. Aren't there times, even as a pastor, you go, boy, we really could get some ministry done if so-and-so would just change or if this person wouldn't be here. I just really wish that we could be more focused on this as a church. Well, if you're the leader, that's on you. I don't like that part. So what do we do to change it? Well, we need to emphasize this process of spiritual growth and reproduction. Emphasize, or you could call it apprenticeship. Discipleship, call it what you will. You might have your own terminology, but good leaders make good followers and vice versa. 
I'm always working my way out of a job. Every pastor in here is an interim pastor. You're only there for a period of time. It might be five years, or it might be 50 years, but you're only there for a period of time. Your pastoring of that church had a start date, and it will someday. And it, maybe the Lord's coming back, but someday it's going to have an end date. You are a parent for a period of time. I understand that person's going to be your child for the rest of their life, but they're going to be in your home with direct access to what they're doing all the time for just a short period of time. And I'm still a relatively young parent. My oldest is 14. I'm realizing how quickly that time goes by. Some of you know that even better than I do. So we need a culture of multiplication. We've talked about what culture is. So how do we affect behaviors in the church to create this multiplying culture that Christ speaks of in the Great Commission. Well, here's three behaviors to create a multiplying culture. Number one, multiplication, it can start small. It can start small, but it must dream big. Consider Acts 1.8, that ye shall receive power. After the, that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. It started small. We've been, I've been preaching through Acts on Sunday mornings in our church, and it just amazes me. After Christ, all His work, all of His miracles, all the things that He taught, after Christ finished, there were 120 people gathered in the upper room. By human standards, by church growth model standards, Christ was a failure in ministry. We know He wasn't. So I'm just saying, if it was all about the numbers... Very small, three and a half years, only 120. But see, it, it can start small. That's okay. I've talked to pastors who are getting ready to start a church. I've talked to pastors who have been pastoring for a long time. They say, well, I just don't have very many people. Well, how many people do you need to start? Just you and go reach somebody else. What program can we put in? How can we get this organized? I understand all those things come, but it starts really small. Go and be a witness and start in Jerusalem, next door, in your own house. It, have you ever found it's sometimes easier to witness to strangers? It's easier to give to missions and pay someone else to do the Great Commission for you. I'm not saying we shouldn't give to missions. The Bible teaches that. But we can't just give to missions and not be missionaries ourselves. It can start small, but you ought to dream big. His command was to go to the uttermost part of the earth. And the church of Jerusalem, I would argue, didn't really want to do all that uttermost part of the earth stuff. They, they got pretty content in Jerusalem. And so God allowed persecution, a guy by the name of Saul. Of course, God saved him too and used him to help get it to the uttermost part of the earth. But God kept bringing persecution and difficulty, keep spreading the church out and spreading the church out and spreading the church out. Don't ask yourself, well, how can I grow my church? But rather, how can I multiply God's kingdom? Number two, multiplication requires everyone to have an apprentice. If you don't have an apprentice, somebody that you are looking to encourage and share Christ with, and then when they come to Christ, help them to grow in their walk with the Lord, multiplication will never take place. It just stopped with you. And that's not just a pastor thing, that's an every Christian thing. 
every Christian ought to have somebody that they're looking to reach out to. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This can be a discouraging process. I'm looking, I thought they were going to be faithful. I thought they were going to come along, but they didn't. They walked away. Keep trying to reach them as best you can and go find somebody else. Keep encouraging. Keep trying to lead people in their walk with the Lord. It requires everyone to have an apprentice. I want this even practically in our church. I want our nursery leader to have somebody that she's encouraging and teaching what she does. I want our Sunday school teachers to be apprenticing somebody else to take their job. I want our musicians to be teaching and training somebody else. I want the guys in the sound booth teaching and training. And those are just kind of practical work things, but this needs to be happening in a spiritual sense as well. It's not the pastor's job to disciple everybody that comes to church. It's the whole church's job. It's every person's job. Every person ought to have, a, have an apprentice. And I get it. Sometimes it's tough to find good apprentices, right? And there's all these reasons why we can't do it or shouldn't do it. But those are just excuses because God's commanded us to do it and he's given us the power necessary to accomplish it. It takes a lot of time. We understand that. We'll get into that more in a few minutes. But it could take years, even decades. Wouldn't it be great, pastor? Wouldn't it be great, Sunday school teacher? Wouldn't it be great, church member, if someday when the Lord calls you home, you can go in peace knowing that there's already one or two there that are just going to step right in and carry that ministry. Multiplication requires everyone to have an apprentice. Number three, multiplication is not about my castle. It's about God's kingdom. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If I'm here just to build my castle and look how big I can be, that's the wrong focus. We ought to be focused on building God's kingdom. And here's what happens when you build God's kingdom. Sometimes people will leave your castle and go to somebody else's castle. Sometimes they'll go build their own. And that's a good thing, but we ought to be focused on God's kingdom. It's not my job to control every person that comes here. It's not my job to tell every person what God's will is for their life. It's my job to point them to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit of God lead and guide and direct them to where He wants them to be. We can tend to put a lid on multiplication because, well, I'm not sure how that's going to build this castle here. And so I can't let you do that or help in that way. Help folks think about God's kingdom. And I believe you'll see even multiplication taking place in your own local church. So, what is this culture we're trying to develop? We've talked about a multiplication culture. We've talked about some behaviors to develop it. So what is this disciple-making culture we're talking about? Well, let's talk about first some things that it's not. It's not a program. I understand you may have a discipleship program at your church. We have a plan and things that we're putting people through, but it's not only a program. Because if it's just a program, it'll have to change or it'll have to end. Yes, you're going to make changes to different things you're doing, but it's a mentality. It's a philosophy. It's, it's what we do. It's who we are. We are disciple makers. It's not just a program. It's not merely teaching, even though it does involve teaching. 
it's not merely just reaching or getting people to come to stuff. That doesn't make a disciple. What's a disciple? It's somebody who then can turn around and make other disciples, right? It's not merely just discipleship. Okay, well, we, we did discipleship together. Great. Okay. But are they ready to now lead somebody else forward? Are they ready to reproduce themselves spiritually? Can I look out in my church and say, this is so-and-so who in time, he may not be there yet or she may not be there yet, but they'll be able to take my place someday because I can see God at work in their life. Wouldn't it be interesting if someday when it came time to find another pastor for your church, instead of having to go hire a pastor from another church, you could raise them up from within your church. Wouldn't it be amazing if the body could reproduce and care for itself? And, and some of these things I talked about early on that I think we have some missionaries doing this really well, it's because they're kind of forced into this. They can't just call up where they went to college and say, do you have any other pastors that can come work here? It's like, no, if I, if I don't train them, we're not going to have them. And I'm thankful for the Bible colleges and the schools that we have. Those are a blessing. But again, those are a means to an end. The work God's called us to is disciple making. It's responsibility. The responsibility for discipleship is never placed upon parachurch organizations, even though they can help us with that. But it's the church's responsibility. Just like it's not the school's responsibility to educate my children. It's my responsibility to educate my children because God gave them to me. Now, I can use a school to help in their educational process, but ultimately it's on the parents, right, to train up a child. That command's given to fathers and mothers, not to a school. If I want to hire a school to do that process for my children, that's fine, but it's still that responsibility is placed on me as a parent. In disciple-making, same thing. The responsibility is placed on the local church. Disciple-making is not exclusively bound to a one-on-one relationship or just a small group. So, Are you being discipled? Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a small group. Okay, that's good, but... It doesn't mean that disciple-making is taking place. Well, I have a one-on-one, we, we get together. Great, but is disciple-making taking place? Are you being taught to observe all things whatsoever He's commanded you? Are you growing to the place that you're going to be able to reproduce yourself in others? I'm trying to get beyond just the program that we're so good at creating and putting together and organizing, and those are all good things, and they hopefully have a goal, but let's look under the hood of that program and ask ourselves, are disciples being made or not? Is the church growing or not? Are people growing in their relationship with God or not? You may not be growing numerically because maybe your people are going to the mission field so quickly you just can't reach them fast enough. to. Well, that'd be a wonderful problem to have, right? But I don't think it's a problem any of us have ever experienced or probably ever would because I think if there's multiplication taking place, even if people are leaving to go pastor other places or even are leaving to go be missionaries other places, God is working here to grow the church. Disciple-making is not being primarily discipled by someone outside of your local church. I think it's really important. I talk, well, who's disciple? Well, I have this lady or I have this guy over here I meet with. Good. Are they part of your church? Well, no, they, they just have a, a Bible study in the neighborhood and Okay, well, that's nice, but you're not being grown up into the body, right? Go back to Ephesians 4, all the body parts working together. It's fine for you to go and study the Bible with your friends. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's not disciple-making. It's a Bible study. 
we have a lot of substitutes for this. And we keep ourselves really busy with all these other things. I'm serving over here. I'm studying the Bible over there. I am uh, involved in working at my church over here. But none of it is effectively making disciples who make disciples. It may all play into it. So what is disciple making? Well, I think it's a normative. This is something we should be doing, in other words. Local church, individual responsibility that God the Spirit empowers as Christ builds His church. This is something that every person in the church needs to be doing, needs to be a part of. Every Paul needs a Timothy, and every Timothy needs a Paul. It's not just the pastor needs a bunch of Timothys, even though he should. But every person in the church, what about your deacons? What about their wives? What about these other folks throughout the church? It is each saint shouldering the responsibility to spiritually reproduce themselves. Wouldn't it be amazing if, I always pick on Brother Matt because he sits down front here, if, and he's just been in our church about a year, but if in time he could look over and say, hey, there's Brother So-and-so, I led them to Christ. I've been spending time studying God's Word with them. I've been teaching him how to lead other people to Christ. And in fact, not only is there Brother So-and-so, there's another brother that this brother led to Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? There's spiritual reproduction taking place. But too often we find, and, and God gives us people who are gifted evangelists, I understand. So there'll be one guy and he'll be like, well, these are the ten people I led to Christ. Well, if any of those ten ever led anybody to Christ, well, no, but I'm really good at it. Well, who else have you helped? Because that's addition. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if he could train two of those guys to lead people to Christ, now multiplication starts to take place. What if you're, you know, you have a Sunday school classes, maybe at your church or small groups or something else. And in, if your church is growing, you're going to need more of those. Well, who's going to teach those classes? Who's going to train those people? What if it was the good Sunday school teacher you already had who was training those other people? Oh, as our church has grown, our nursery keeps growing. Oh, we could never keep enough ladies working in the nursery. We have, what, four or five new babies being born, you know, in the next few months, just a couple born, a couple more on the way. and That seems to be a regular process for us. As I tell our church, there's more than one way to grow a church. You understand all that. But how are we going to train more nursery workers. We understand this in a simple sense of training, but what about this whole sense of disciple-making, of training people who lead others to Christ and then help them to grow? Because here's what often happens. It's sort of broken up. Even in a really good church, maybe Brother Matt leads somebody to Christ, and then he brings them to my class, and then I, I teach them. And then they go over here, and they get involved in the ministry, and they serve over there. And Brother Matt's still trying to lead people to Christ, but in time, this process becomes really disjointed and, and there's not really a good culture that is that is sustainable and growable because what happens in time, someday God moves Brother Matt away or God takes Brother Matt home. And who fills that hole? Our evangelist is gone. So what are we going to do? We don't have anybody reaching anybody anymore. And then the church just kind of... Or you see a pastor, he comes in and gets things really organized and they're running and he's a great preacher. He's dynamic. It's great. And the church is growing. And then... We just talked to somebody this week. We were out visiting the neighborhood. We're looking for a church. Well, why? Our pastor left. Why should that be a reason to look for another church? Well, maybe because everything was dependent on him, and if his personality, and he tells great stories, and he's a great preacher, 
all wonderful things about him. But is that what makes a church? You see, I think a lot of the struggles we find ourselves in are self-inflicted because we got away from what Christ called us to do. Yes, it's great to have a wonderful message, and you should. It's great to have wonderful music, and you should. It's great to have good classes and Sunday school and nurse, all those things, and you should. But if you're busy doing all those things and you forget to equip saints to do the work of the ministry, the real work of the ministry, we've missed the point. It's a commitment of a life to another life for life. It requires that the pastor be the chief disciple maker. If I'm not doing it, how can I expect anybody else? It goes back to our idea of being a culture creator. It's like the dad sitting on the, on the couch at home trying to teach his children to be disciplined in what they eat, and he's eating whatever he wants, right? It, it just doesn't work. It's the same thing as the pastor saying, well, let, let, me, let me organize the ministry, but I'm not going to do it myself. Well, pastor, who are you discipling? Well, I don't disciple. I'm, I'm preaching and I'm doing it. Well, who are you helping to grow personally, spiritually, individually? How are you modeling this to your church so they can do it as well? Do you have any stories of spiritual transformation? Who have you led to Christ that you actually went out yourself and reached? You're asking your people to do it. You're like, well, you bring them to me and I'll lead them to Christ. Well, that's good. But who are you personally leading to Christ? Who are you personally leading in the process? If the pastor's not personally the most active, then this doesn't work. Programs, compared to this disciple-making process, programs have a clean start and end. Disciple-making, this relationship and process, it's one life to a life for life. Programs provide measurable accomplishments. All right, we had this many people come in, and this happened. All good things, but disciple-making success can take decades. It's not as exciting, I understand, because it's not as measurable. Because how do I measure Brother Andrew's spiritual growth? Well, I can measure by how many times he came to church. I can try to measure by whether or not he you know, gave how much he gave, and I can go in and look and say, hmm, he didn't give very much. And, and then you say, Pastor, why are you even looking at that? You shouldn't look. Right, I can try to measure through all these things, but I can't really quantify all of that. But in time, I'd be able to look at him and say, yes, God's done a transformative work in his life. How do I know? I look at, these are the people he's brought to Christ. This is how his family's doing. This is how his marriage is doing. God's bringing restoration and transformation in his life. Programs train people to serve for a limited time, typically the length of the program. This disciple-making process trains people to serve for a lifetime. I love it, and we're just starting to figure a few of these things out a little more and more around here, but I love seeing some of our older folks in our church, our senior saints, instead of like, oh, I'm older, I can't run as hard as I used to, so my ministry is less important, or I can't do as much, and God's just called me to a ministry of prayer now. No, some of those folks are, are, are our best disciple makers. And you know, the scripture kind of talks about that over in Titus, doesn't it? About those older women teaching the younger women, the older men helping those young men. It's not just that we should have old people teaching our Sunday school classes. It's that 
older saints in the ministry have wisdom to share and ought to be passing it down. But how many of our ministries sometimes, even in our desire to be organized and grow, we just section all those people off separately and they almost don't even know each other's names. I talked to one older pastor. Well, he was a missionary for many years and um, saw, this was in Japan, Ron White told me they started, it was Ron White, Don Sisk, and there was another guy, all went to Japan together over 50 years ago, and they've all preached here, and uh, they were sharing, they said, you know, we started with, each of us planted a church, three guys, so there were three churches, I said, how many churches are there in Japan today from those first three, 50 years later, he said, 98, in Japan, and he said, we now have missionaries from those churches, who grew up in those churches, who were trained in those churches, who have gone to 20 other foreign countries that are supported financially 100% by those Japanese churches. And we've all said, oh, Japan's a hard place. But God's work happens there. I just wonder, like, if a few churches in Houston or a few churches in Dallas or a few churches in San Antonio, a few churches in Louisiana were serious about this process, what God could do over 50 years here. I don't think it was because those guys were the most talented guys in the world. They're wonderful, but they're just men. I think it was because they were faithful to make disciples. Programs are rarely repeated. They constantly have to be reworked and tweaked. Biblical disciple-making naturally grows. Programs take much effort to garner participation. They result in hollow success. Disciple-making, the results are in the first Thing. What's the first thing? We'll go over to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 1 to 5. Again, familiar passage of Scripture. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Who was the angel of the church of Ephesus? Well, this was the pastor. This was the messenger. This was the leader of this church. What did he, tell, what did he say to write to him? These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, which walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. I know the people that are here on a Monday morning at 9 o'clock. You work hard. Many of you pastors preached yesterday, and you're here today. You're going, why did these guys start Monday morning at 9 o'clock? Well, because... We just don't know what we're doing. I know how thou canst bear them which are evil. You take a stand for the truth. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. You're calling out the false teachers. You're dealing with the wicked things in this world. You're working hard. These guys would say, we're doing the work of the ministry. But we're there. And as born, has patience, and for my name's sake thou hast labored and hast not fainted. You've stayed faithful when other people have fallen by the wayside. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. That's the first work. Well, what, what did he write to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where we started out? What's the pastor supposed to do? 
expect the same for the work of the ministry to edify the body of Christ. Is soul winning involved in that? Absolutely. Is training people involved in that? Absolutely. But helping each believer to say, all right, how can I help Brother Matt to grow, to learn, to give him what he needs so that he can begin to lead others to Christ? He may not lead people to Christ as quickly as Brother Brad or Brother Chase because maybe God's given them more of a, an evangelism gift to them. But anybody that he does lead to Christ, is he equipped to be able to lead them in their walk with the Lord? What's he need to get there? How can I help him? Sister so-and-so, yeah, she's lived a lot of years. She used to work in the nursery. She used to do all these things. She's, she's not able to get down on the floor with the babies anymore, and she loves those babies, but how are we going to help her? Does she have what she needs to be able to take her Bible and take another young lady alongside and say, let me show you what it means to walk with Jesus. Let me show you how to learn and to grow. How do we help people do that? It's hard to quantify that into a program. Now we can use programs to help in the process. But he called the pastor here to repent because you've left your first love. I think for this disciple-making work to take root, it first of all requires for some repentance on the part of pastoral leadership. Lord, we've been busy. Lord, we've worked hard. Lord, we've tried to be faithful. We've stood for the truth. Lord, you've forgotten the first works. And he says, what will happen if you don't repent? Else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, out of his place. Son of God. And I'm concerned as I look around at the church in America, and I'm speaking in a broader sense here, that the candlestick is being removed out of the place where it once was because we've forgotten what God has called us to do. Pastor, what's your first love? What's your top priority? See, Christ isn't upset that this pastor was lazy. He wasn't. He worked hard. He, this pastor was patient. He stood for righteousness. He was faithful. He wasn't a quitter. Those are easy things for us to say, yeah, that pastor, he's not worth anything. That church is no good. No, this pastor's problem was that he left his first love. If this doesn't change, he'll remove the candlestick unless he repents. So let's go back to where we began, Ephesians 4. We're almost done. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. As the saints are perfected, as they are equipped, as they are encouraged, then they can be doing the work of the ministry as well. We have seen this in just our four and a half years here. So many saints are discouraged. They're hurt. They're beat up. They're confused. They don't know which end is up. I'm amazed in our you know, Christian uh, maybe post-Christian, whatever it is, the culture that we live in here, even in Texas, how many professed Christians who've been baptized, I've even met some who've been Sunday school teachers at other churches, and they don't know almost the first thing about the Bible. Because they've, they've read some devotional books, and they've been able to kind of explain what it says, and just kind of work through it. But there's no 
stability. They're carried about with everyone but God. There's no willingness to go and make disciples. They're afraid to do it because I won't be able to answer the questions. I won't know what to say. I don't know what to do. We do this for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Pastor, Christian, your job is never done until you reach heaven someday. It doesn't matter how young or as old as you are. It doesn't matter how strong or as weak you are. God has given you a job to be part of this disciple-making process. I understand you're here, you're like, I'm not a pastor. You're part of this process, though, because you're part of the body. So you are called to be a disciple-maker. You are called to be doing this work of the ministry. Now, as the pastor of this church, I want to lead in that mission that God has given us. I want to help to equip you to do it. But you've got to be doing it. And if you're not doing it, let's talk about how we can help you do it. So I need to learn some more. I need, I need someone to help disciple me. Wonderful. Let's get busy doing the first thing. And as we see this, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. I worked in sales when I was paying my way through seminary. And I worked, they put me, because I was in seminary, they, they had me calling on churches. Now, churches is a very broad term. We understand any and every kind of church that even has church in the name or doesn't have church in the name, but would be sort of classified legally as a church. And I was amazed how many people I ran into in all kinds of cults and other uh, places. I say, well, and they'd find out I was in seminary. Where are you going to seminary? Oh, the Baptist seminary. I used to be a Baptist. Why are you a Jehovah's Witness now? Why are you a Catholic now? Why are you this now? Why are you that now? Well, they just were friendlier. Or I married somebody in this church, or I this, or I that. Why were they carried away? Because they were never grounded in the truth. They don't know what they believe. I'm just a Baptist. Someone says, well, you know, there's people who don't like Baptists. I don't know if you should have it in the name on the sign. I said, whatever name we have on the sign, somebody's not going to like it. <laughs> I said, we have it because we believe what Baptists have stood for historically, and that's who we are, and we're happy to explain that to people. But just having it on the sign doesn't do us any good if we don't ground people in the truth. Just because we have music that we say is good music doesn't matter if nobody even knows why. Getting up and preaching every Sunday, well, why, why are we wasting our time doing that? People have to be grounded. Otherwise, they're carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. I don't want to just have a really big front door and say, all of y'all come on in, if at the same time I have a really big back door and they're all just slipping out the other side. All I'm doing then is just creating a churn. And I find that even in our communities, many people, I would say, are almost inoculated against the gospel. I've already done that, tried that. I've already done the church thing. Why would I do that again? I've even been baptized three times, four times. Got baptized at this church and that church and that church. Why didn't it help me? You just got wet. Well, you get baptized in our church. Guess what? That won't help them either. 
if we don't teach them to observe all things and help them to grow. Because people have marriages that are falling apart. People have kids that are going the wrong way. People have all these things. Well, how are you going to deal with that stuff? Pastor, you're going to be counseling forever. No, I've got to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Every saint is part of this place. Say, I'm not ready. That's okay. Take the next step. I, I, I've explained it to somebody this way. He said, why? Well, I, I don't know everything you know, Pastor. I said, that's fine. Do you know where you are today? Do you know what Christ has done in your heart to bring where you, you are to this point today? And said, yes. I said, then you can bring somebody to where you are. Have you been saved? Yes. Well, let me help you know how to explain that to somebody else. Can you share them what Christ did in your life? Yes. Okay, then you can lead somebody to Christ. Have you been baptized? Yes. Well, then if you really understand it, I don't want to just throw them in the water if they don't even know what they're doing. I want to be able to explain it. Yesterday, we had a little boy get baptized, and it was really fun. I was talking with Joe, who got to pray with him when he accepted Christ. This little boy was in my class in vacation Bible school or something. I'm teaching the class. I give the invitation. His hand shot up. He wanted to get saved, and I uh, had him step out. We had a little invitation there, and he went out with uh, Joe Hine, and, and Joe said, I, I got open my Bible, and I started to lead him you know, through the plan of salvation. I get to the first verse, and I start to quote it, and this little boy just finished the verse. He knew all the verses. He said he, he was ready. He, he knew what God was doing in his life. Praise God. I understand they're not all that far when they come to Christ. But if they're being taught and trained and helped to grow in time, they'll stay rooted. They'll stay strong. They'll continue to grow. And in time, they'll lead others to Christ because they know who they are. They know what they've been brought to. But speaking the truth in love, they grow up into him, into Christ, in the image of Christ, in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. You say, I'm just a toe here at my church. Good. We need you. And you can help to train other toes. Here's the reality. I, I'm so thankful for different people that God's given to the body of Christ. And different people connect in different ways. Brother Larry, he's going to be doing barbecue for us on Wednesday. And I'm telling you, some of you are going to have to leave before it, but you probably should come back just for the barbecue on Wednesday because it's that good. It's worth it. But Brother Larry, in his ministry of cleaning and cooking and working around the church, he ministers to some people that I really don't minister to as well because he has a connection with them that I don't have. And they sit down and talk about food and recipes, but at the same time, Larry's like, yep, but... I'm, I'm, I'm getting them into the Bible. We're studying. We're, we're trying to encourage them. See, he's taking people from where they are, and he's encouraging other people. Maybe Brother Larry's a hand, so he's really good at training other hands. But at the same time, it's not just about teaching how to cook or clean the church. It's about teaching how to walk with Jesus and how to know Christ and how to share their faith with somebody else. Encourage your people and be an example of this yourself not just to be the one getting people in the right job at church so the ministry functions smoothly. Say, how can you take the ministry God's given you and use it to share Christ with others? How can you go from where you are and lead somebody to Jesus? Every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, make it increase of the body and the edifying of itself in love. So pastor, what's your job? I would say it's to make disciples. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So how do you do this? Well, you do it by making disciples who make disciples. People say, well, I, how, what kind of program have you used? What have you done? We'll talk about some of those things, and David's going to share some things God's doing at their church. But 
it's not so much about creating a program. It's about you going out and doing it yourself and then teaching others to do the same. Pastor, what's the goal? It's the fullness of Jesus Christ. What's the result? Well, the church is steadfast. The church is sanctified. The church is speaking the truth in love. The church is serving together. The church is growing together, both spiritually and numerically. Some places might be quicker than others. That's okay. I've seen some people, it takes them a really long time to grow. It's hard ground, and you're plowing and plowing and plowing and plowing. I don't know if anybody's ever going to grow. And then slowly they do. Jesus, and this is not for me, it's from his website. Jesus had this upside-down strategy. See, modern-day discipleship says, get them all to attend my church, and then I'll try to connect with as many of those people as possible, and then from there we'll get some of those people who've connected to serve in the church, and then a few of those will go. That's the one on the, on the left. The one on the right, that was Jesus' strategy. Within his group of apostles, disciples, he had Peter, James, and John, the three. From there, the 12 minus one. And then you see the 70, 500, and then on and on it goes. 3,000 saved in Jerusalem, and the church continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and spread. Multiplication, it starts small. But you can dream big, and you should. Multiplication, it's not about your castle. It's about his kingdom. Multiplication requires everybody. Discipling the few is slow. It is. It's slow. If you were saying, I'm not doing this like I should, and you started to do it, probably nobody would even notice right away. You wouldn't be able to announce it on Sunday at your church. Hey, we are now. Now the culture of disciples, that's not how it works. It'd be like if I went to my house today and I said, from now on, we're speaking Spanish in the Cover household. Okay. Dad, you're weird. But what if I wanted the Cover household to begin speaking in Spanish? Then I got to go speak Spanish. I got to learn Spanish. And I got to slowly communicate. And it'd be painful. It'd be times when you say, why would you even do that? It's no purpose. No one even cares. Nobody's going to notice. Well, if the Lord had called us as missionaries to Mexico, it would matter. He hasn't. I'm thankful the Lord's got us here. If you went to your church on Sunday and said, we're going to be disciple makers. Okay. You might as well tell them, we're all going to start speaking Portuguese or Chinese or whatever. And come in, oh, yeah, I got it. And they're ready to go. You're like, wow. But most of them wouldn't have a clue. So how do you do it? You start by yourself. You and your wife. Hey, you say, my pastor's not even here. Doesn't need to be. You can do this. Nothing's stopping you from going and sharing Christ with somebody else. Well, they didn't get saved. Just keep sharing Christ with them. Most of you didn't get saved the first time somebody talked to you about it. I was four years old when I got saved. I'd probably heard the gospel a thousand times by that point. Right? The kingdom of God is a mustard seed that always will be. 
Number two, discipling the few is hard. We'll get into this more in some of our afternoon sessions today. People are complex. Boy, aren't they. And spiritual formation is messy. When you get into discipling somebody, you're going to find out things like, mm, I, I don't know if I wanted to know that. And I'm supposed to have answers. I, my, my answer now to people has become this. I may not all have all the answers, but I know the one who does. And I'll spend time with you in the Word of God, seeking and studying to find those answers until Christ shows us what He wants us to do. And that's the truth. And that's the truth for every single one of us. We don't have all the answers. It's slow. It's messy. It's hard. It's complex. Discipling the few is limiting. Why is it limiting? Pastor, you can't disciple everybody in your church. My wife and I talk about this all the time. Like, Shandy, you can't disciple all the ladies. She has a heart, too. I'm thankful for that. But you can't disciple everybody. It's limiting. Why? This is an interesting thought. We don't have time to get into it, but limits and rebellion are closely related. Why? We've been resisting limits since the Garden of Eden. I told Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the fruit, but all the trees, but this one don't touch or don't eat from it. Of course, Eve, oh, we couldn't touch it. You know, all, all the things she added in. There was a limit. God's put a limit on you. You have a limited energy. You have limited time. Limited influence, limited ability. You have all kinds of limits. That's okay because God gave those to you. In fact, I think those are daily reminders that we need God's grace, we need God's strength, and we need to rest in Him. Don't try to rebel against the limits that God has put around you. Understand, let me just pour faithfully into these to this one or these two or these three because that's all I can do in the Lord's strength. Discipling. The few demands a lot from me. It's just like raising your kids. Billy and Lisa just had their first baby, and Billy was playing the guitar up here at the beginning, and Billy's like, oh, man. I feel like the amount of stuff in our house that we have is like twice as much as the two of us together, and we added just one tiny thing, and now he's got more stuff than we do combined. This one tiny thing keeps both of us up all night. This one tiny thing demands so much. It's the same in discipling baby Christians. We're doing all this just, are they even worth it? They were worth it to Jesus. He died for them. I haven't had to die for anybody yet. And you haven't either because you're here. You may feel a little bit dead this morning. I don't know. You're like, oh, they've tried to kill me a few times. But God still has you here. You cannot give. I cannot give what I do not possess. And I cannot help but give what I do possess. It requires that I keep growing in love. I will tell you, the more I invest in people and discipling them, the more God grows me. Sometimes I'm sitting down with a new believer going through the same new believer's Bible study that I've been through I don't even know how many times now, and I'm still learning new stuff. I have two master's degrees, and I feel like I, I'm like, what did I even learn? Because I'm sitting here, a new believer's Bible saying God's showing me new things out of His Word in this. Man, I'll just give you one little thing that God taught me just recently. We were studying on the preservation of Scripture. And I was went to Deuteronomy 6 and talked about how the fathers are to pass it down to their children. And it was like it just hit me, like, 
God slapped me over the head, a light bulb went on, and it was like, hey, guess what, Dad? You are part of God's plan to preserve truth as you pass it down to your children. I understand there's preservation like in the written word on the page, but part of the preservation of that truth is in the culture that I'm teaching my children as I take the truth that God's revealed to me from His Word and I pass it down to my kids. Isn't that pretty cool that God uses moms and dads to preserve His Word? Anyway, that was just one. And I'm like studying with a new believer and God just encouraged me with that thought. It just doesn't stop. So let me give you a little quiz and then if Mr. A probably has a phone call, but he'll come back in and I wanted him to just share a little testimony with you so you can see some of this in real life. Here's your quiz. True or false? The only way to disciple a person is for gifted, mature Christians or a gifted, mature Christian to work one-on-one with a believer who desires to grow in Christ. True or false? The answer is false. I understand there are pieces of that, but it's really false. Number two, the disciple is a Christian, but a Christian may not be a disciple. That's one. Well, I would say an obedient Christian is a disciple. So if you, I, we could argue back and forth on true or false on that one. I would say a, a real Christian, like someone who's really a Christ follower, is a disciple. I understand people get born again. I believe they're genuinely, genuinely saved, maybe struggling to grow and all that. I understand. And I've seen people like that as well. But a faithful Christian, a, an obedient Christian, is a disciple. It's not like, well, but disciple making some higher plane that I've found. No, it's, it's what God just expects of every Christian. Number three, disciple-making is only one of several key ministries in the church. I would argue it is the ministry of the church. Now, every other ministry in your church ought to support disciple-making. How does disciple-making happen in our nursery? It's amazing how one mom is able to encourage another mom in the Lord and talk about stuff that's going on with the baby. We've even had some ladies sitting in the back because, you know, it was just a little baby on the ground. They said, hey, let's, let's get our Bible real quick, study. And one lady saw another lady and said, what are, what are they doing? They weren't just chit-chatting about nothing in the nursery. They were talking about Jesus. And the other lady said, I'd like that too. Share it in the Lord. Number four, the church should focus primarily on discipling those who are serious about Christianity. I say false. We should be focused on discipling every believer. Now, I get it. Some will be more serious than others in time. But who am I to decide who's going to be effective in the ministry and who's not? Number five, disciple making involves the edification of the saints and not the evangelism of sinners. False, false, false. Wrong, wrong, wrong. This isn't just the edification program in your church. It's it's edifying believers so they'll go and evangelize the lost and evangelizing the lost so they can be edified as believers. It's all of it. And number six, disciple making is best accomplished by a few in the church who are trained to disciple those who are serious about their commitment to Christ. Again, I would say false. If you only have a few in your church that are trained to do this, then pastor, you have a problem. 
Everybody needs this. So, how are we doing? This is my friend Abe. When I asked him to come by today, and just come on up, Abe. We met a little over four years ago. Yep. And uh, God's done a lot of work in his life. So, maybe can you just talk a minute? You've got a busy life right now. You've got two kids, school's crazy. Everything's going on. You're traveling all over the world right now, or at least all over Central and South America in business. He's a business consultant. Lots going on. So, Abe, maybe just if you can do it in 10, five minutes or so, 10 minutes, because then you're ready for a break. That's why I put you last, because you're going to be more interesting than me. Tell them some of what God's done to transform your life. Well, good morning. I'm uh, Abe uh, Masudier. Uh, I'm from Mexico. My my wife is from Colombia, and my kids hold three passports: so Colombia, U.S., and, and Mexico. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> uh, our story is it's mm, well a, a lot of downs, and now it's everything up. So uh, a little bit of our background: I grew up in in uh, Catholic background. My, my my parents were. I mean, we just went to church, but there was not no no knowledge of God at all, other than I mean, you see in in church and all that. And I mean, I'm gonna try to first go to first level of of, of details, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit deep and probably reinforce what you have been saying about what is the life of, of a Christian, right? Uh, so basically, um, we got married. Uh, I mean, at a family level, we got married, we start raising our kids uh, based on what the world says and different people say and different opinions say. So there was a lot of conflict in, 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 in our life, of course. I mean, you're, you don't know what to hear and you're trying to figure out what does best. And that's actually what, what the world is looking right now, like trying to find out for a, uh, an identity, okay, in every single aspect. On the business side, I also did the same, right, trying to... Uh, look at different mentors, different lives, trying to please people. And I'm very adaptable. So in, to, to be an adaptable person is you need to mimic your environment and trying to find out that personality and uh, different versions as well. Okay. So through the last, I'll say, I'm 41, so 37 years, I was just, I mean, and as a family, we're just going back and forth. Lots of fun, everything you can imagine. Uh, happened to our marriage and to our lives and to our people, everything you can imagine, all right? So it was not nice. Uh, my wife and I, at a certain point, is, uh, a couple of times, tried to, you know what? Yeah, this is it. All right? We cannot do this anymore. And lots of conflict, a lot of pains. We damage our kids and all that. So <clears throat> uh, I remember at the beginning of our, of our marriage, uh, we were in Arkansas. And that's, my, my wife knew the Lord and she was a Christian, but she didn't knew her, right? She didn't have a, a relationship. She, she just grew up also in that environment. So I met, uh, we were in a non-denominational church and I met the pastor and the master, the pastor actually sit with me and I was very, very, very foolish um, saying, well, you need to prove that God exists. It's like that, how foolish was. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and he was patient enough to work with me where the Bible were different sessions until I kind of started getting that. Uh, I finally got, well, God exists. I knew that. Okay. 
I know he uh, sent uh, Jesus to die for us to forgive our sins. I knew that, and I trusted that, and I got baptized of that. But I didn't start, it didn't transform my life. I didn't start to develop a relationship with God or with the people at church or anything. All right. So it was just a kind of, kind of a little bit tainted by the Catholic background that, okay, now I go to church and I'm good. All right. Everything's going to work. It's going to work out. It didn't. All right. At all. <laughs> um, it was probably final until the last conflict that our marriage happened about four years ago that we, something clicked in our head. All right. And we decided that the Bible is our common sense for everything. To raise our kids, to our marriage, to business. I, uh, I have a mentor here at church that is teaching me that you don't have to listen to the word to be successful in business. You need to, that's the only, so that's your identity, that's your character. You don't have to do stuff that usually you do in business to grow, to build relationships, to sell, right? Um, so it's been a wonderful transformation. So uh, over the last four years, uh, pastor's wife, I mean, they work with us. And th this is the one of the key things. I mean, they spend a lot of time with us, okay, and, and to teach us to care for us, to love us, to guide us, okay? And this is what this church does very well compared to the first one I did because I developed a relationship with the pastor back in Arkansas, but I was dependent on him, not in God. That's the first mistake, all right? Uh, if he wasn't present or he was there, so I lost completely interest in, in God. With him, actually, they punt us to the world God. That's the relationship. That's where everything comes up. And then they let you go and they, let, and they help you to grow. That is the important thing. I do this for a living. I change behaviors in companies for a living. Okay? I, that's what I do. And, yeah. And I just realized that. No, I, <laughs> they went through that to the same with me. <laughs> so, I mean, if you look at how do you change behaviors, right? First, you create. Uh, motivation and emotion and you everything's happy oh this is a word but this is what I mean this is how I explain to my clients right we're gonna create this motivation okay and everyone's gonna be so happy I want it I want to build it but okay it's not just knowing and looking at what God is gonna is gonna do for you already did for you okay it's gonna come to now you need to start changing it and and and, and do it yourself okay so motivation starts going down okay and anger and frustration starts coming in why? Because you are bringing the character of God to the worldly things, okay? And you're not, I mean, you, when I do this with people, they, they need to do twice they do. what they're doing right now plus what the God is telling them to do or what I'm telling them to do, okay? So there is a fear, anger, and then many people stays here. And if they stay here for a long time, my project fails, okay? And it fails pretty bad. But if we help them to push into this, it becomes sustainable and it becomes a new behaviors, behaviors that you cannot erase at all. Okay, so we have two phases in our projects and the two phases are, let me understand who you are. First, what is your soul? What do you do? And that's created this motivation. That's where they told us, I mean, they, they, they were very close to us. They learned to know who we are. Okay, and then we call a project. In a project, 
I mean, that, well, getting to know each other can last for between four, eight weeks, maybe. Projects usually last 48 weeks, okay, at least. That's how much it takes to actually bring new behaviors into people. Now, we are successful because we don't stay in our clients forever. Okay, we push them to change the behavior themselves and there they stay. Okay. So that's what we're doing right now. We, my family and I, we're still already in a, in a stage of sustainability. Okay, we're starting to grow each other as a family. We're making decisions because we're growing in the world lot. And for me, this has been a wonderful, I travel a lot. I mean, stay uh, out of home and usually you feel lonely, stress out, you kind of share it. And in the past, I used to do other things to cope with that. Now it's prayer. Now it's read the word God and he's with me supporting each step. Okay. And it's, um, it's been wonderful. I also share it whenever I have the time. I mean, last week I was with a, um, yeah, and I didn't know how, how equipped I was. Um, was a very challenging situation because I was with a person that I want in my group because she's wonderful. She, she knows how to do this stuff. And uh, she introduced me to her partner that's been together for 27 years, another girl. And they know the Bible. They know. I also know it. <laughs> so we started actually uh, talking about, uh, they were kind of questioning me, I mean, what were my thoughts about women in the Bible? And so, well, uh, I know about Lydia, I know about Ruth, I know about Esther, and I know about all these people, okay? And uh, they're wonderful people. I mean, what the word is saying to the women about not being able to lead, not being able to do stuff, that's not true <laughs> at all. I mean, you have, Lydia was a business businesswoman, okay? Esther uh, was a leader. I um, can't remember the name of the, the judge. Deborah, all right? So... I engaged in that I knew what I was talking about and I was actually able to share what Christ does for us because they are very Catholic, not Christian. Okay, actually they have a, a, a statue of, um, of um, San Miguel. Yeah, some, one of the saints. Okay, anyway. So that is being equipping me to talk to people about very deeply of what I, we're studying and sharing, okay? But also leaving it. I mean, that that's the most important part. I mean, uh, my family, friends, they're asking us what happened to you guys. I mean, they're seeing a little bit of the of a transformation. Okay, and uh, and it, it's been wonderful. I mean, we are becoming a lot more stronger based on what any other things that we try in the past of looking for advice, psychologists, psychoanalysts. It doesn't help. This is just perceptions of people okay it's already written what is our purpose how we need to share how we need to treat our wife or our kids it's not easy though and again it's always it's always cycles but we always need to remember that stepping out of this low cycle and push to the other level there's a lot of blessings okay and sustainability is going to stay there forever and there's no go there's no going back the devil is always attacking us every single day but again for someone that adapts very well in the past i used to be i mean i get attacked and concede to those attacks now i'm not and i don't feel bad because i know god is with me he is leading my way 
right? So that's the biggest transformation I have ever seen, and I didn't know that these two guys actually did. <laughs> no, thank you.